also want to say uh, Happy Mother's Day to all our moms and grandmas and uh, spiritual moms and all the sisters among us. We're, uh, we celebrate you today. We value you. And uh, glad we could be here. Hey, uh, how many of you were here last week? Trick question, right? Trick question. Zero. Zero, I hope, because we were not here last week. Where were we? We were at our all-church retreat, Lighthouse and Friends retreat. How many of you were at the retreat last weekend? Okay, that was great. Did you have a good time? We had a great time. I think over 300 people came, uh, full-time or part-time. We had a wonderful retreat, and uh, so thankful. You know, I think it went really well. Uh, how was the speaker? Great, great, great speaker, James Chung. Uh, you know, I was really happy to have James Chung uh, speak for us and. You know, one thing that was cool was his wife came, Jin Hee, and she told me that when she came and they brought their three little children, um, Isaiah, Nathan, and Jamie, they're all young kids, and when she came to the retreat, and, you know, her husband was going to be the speaker, she thought she's going to have to watch her own kids all weekend, so she was kind of prepared for that. So she was pleasantly surprised that uh, we had a wonderful children's ministry program, and so she didn't, uh, you know, she was kind of free to attend the sessions and all that. And um, her kids had a great time. And Jin Hee, she said she had a great time. And, and uh, James Chung, our speaker, they had a great time. And I have an announcement. They're going to come back and speak for our retreat next year. So really glad about that. Yeah. Incidentally, if you missed the retreat and you want to hear his messages, or if you heard the messages, you want to hear them again, as I do, uh, they are going to be available. They'll be available on a CD. You know what a CD is, right? Uh, they'll be available next Sunday on a CD at, at the table back there, but also they will be online on our lighthouse2001.org uh, website starting this Thursday. The messages will be on our website. That's what I've been told. I say that by faith, but I am a man of faith. So uh, anyway, but it's great. And then, yeah, save. Hey, do this. Put this on your calendar. May 4th to the 6th, 2018, Lighthouse and Friends Retreat. Okay, save the date. I don't want anybody telling me, oh, I would have gone, but I didn't know about it, and I scheduled something else. Uh, put it on your calendar. May 4th to the 6th, 2018. That's our Lighthouse and Friends Retreat. Incidentally, I want to thank all the people that served on the retreat team. Uh, they were awesome. You folks did great. Thanks so much. And uh, give them a hand, yeah? Jackie and her team. And Also... Yeah, a lot of people helped out. You know, we had small group leaders, and we had prayer team, and we had refreshments people, and uh, we just had a whole, you know, people who watched our children, and uh, it was just a great time. Anyway, thanks to everybody for coming and for participating and all the people who helped. Uh, we had a great time, and thanks, too. I know many of you were praying for this retreat, and it was awesome. Okay, now, we're going to start a new message series today. How's that sound? Okay, and it's called uh, Relationships That Work and those that don't. So I don't know which kind you have. You know what I realize, of course, is many relationships, like think about marriage, sometimes it's a relationship that works, but the same marriage might have other times where it's not working uh, very well. This series is not just about marriage. It's going to be about all kinds of relationships that work and those that don't. But we will talk quite a bit about marriage, and uh, today I want to especially talk about uh, marriage under attack Marriage is under attack. And, and I want you to participate a little bit here for just a couple minutes, okay? Here's the assignment. I want you to talk with someone near you, one or two people. And if you don't know them, introduce yourself. Don't tell your whole life story. Just introduce yourself. And I want you to talk with one or two people about this question. In what ways are marriages under attack today? In what ways are marriages under attack today? Or another way to think about it is, what are the greatest threats to marriage uh, in our day, okay? Would you mind, just indulge me, talk about that for about a minute or two with somebody near you? Oh, okay.
Okay, I'm going to give you about 30 seconds more, so if anybody in your group of two or three has not talked yet, uh, give them a chance. Okay. All right, thanks. You guys did great. All right, I would love to hear some of what you came up with. In what ways are, is marriage under attack today, or what are some of the greatest threats to marriage? Uh, you don't need to be married to answer this, uh, but I'd love to hear some of your thoughts. Anybody? Yeah. Satan. I'm sorry, what? Satan. Satan. Okay, Satan. Okay, Satan is called the deceiver and the destroyer, and he's trying to undermine marriages. And, and I believe that, that the evil one really would love to destroy marriages, especially godly Christian marriages, right? Okay, who else? Selfishness? Selfishness. That's a huge one, I think. Okay, selfishness. Someone else? Yeah. Careers, okay. Careers and the stress and busyness of careers can sometimes make marriage hard and stressful. Thanks. Someone else? You guys are much quieter than the people at first service. Yeah, go ahead. What? Social apps. That can, that can undermine marriage, yeah, okay. Thanks. Social apps, yeah. Complacency. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a big danger. In fact, you know, when I do premarital counseling, I, I often find myself telling the, these couples, and, you know, and they're all starry-eyed, and they think, you know, nothing can ever go wrong in marriage. And, and you know, sometimes I, I find myself telling them, I think one of the greatest dangers you're going to face is after a while, it's just really easy to take each other for granted and to become complacent. You know, it's like, I think before you get married, you know you've got to work on your marriage and you really want to. But sometimes just complacency sets in. Yeah. So how about someone else? Yeah. Pornography. Pornography. Okay. Pornography is a huge threat to marriage today. Yeah, thanks. Anyone else? Yeah. Society doesn't value marriage the same? Okay. Yeah, a lot of people think, why get married? Right? Uh, and a lot of people are afraid of marriage today, right? Because of hurtful experiences they've had or heard about or seen on TV or, yeah. Someone else? Anybody? Okay. All right, well, well thanks for sharing that. You know what I found out is that uh, when we talk about marriage is under attack, all of us, it's easy to come up with ways that, that marriage is under attack, you know, whether it's busyness and stress and job pressures and taking each other for granted and complacency and pornography and social apps. And uh, I think sometimes the dangers have to do with our, ourselves, like our own personal insecurities. And uh, weird stuff happens when we feel insecure about who we are and our identity or we need to validate ourselves in somebody else's eyes or something. Uh, nobody said this, but what about this? Is this ever a danger in marriage? a competitive spirit. You know, two people who are supposed to be on the same team sometimes don't act like they're on the same team. All right. Anything else? Okay, so anybody who's not married, we probably just scared the living daylights out of you. <laughs> Never want to get married. Now, I believe in marriage. You know why I believe in marriage? Because marriage is really not our idea. It's God's idea. And you think about this. If marriage is not working... Maybe we ought to go back to the drawing board and say, well, you know, is this just our idea, some, some human construct, you know, some sociological phenomenon, or is this really something that God designed? Now, here's what the Bible teaches, and here's what I believe, that God, the one who created us, 
created us in his image. And he created us for relationship. And we were created for relationship with our God, our creator. That relationship got broken and God had to provide a way to fix it and heal it. And he did that through the death of his son, Jesus. Uh, but also, as God was wanting to reconcile us with himself, he wants us to find reconciliation with each other. He actually wants us to have healthy, life-giving life relationships. And you know what? He made us for that. And that's why we long for that. We hunger for that, even though we might be kind of afraid of the risks or the dangers. Uh, God is the one who created marriage as well. So you think about it. If things aren't working well, maybe we ought to go back to the designer and ask about his design. So I want to talk about marriage today, especially from Ephesians chapter 5. We'll get there uh, soon, Ephesians chapter 5. Our main passage today is Ephesians 5, 21 to 33. And immediately some of you are thinking, uh-oh, I know what that's about. Isn't that that thing about submission? And uh, we'll get there, we'll get there. Okay, well, let's get there now. <laughs> Since you brought it up. Here's what the Bible says. Okay, okay, before we get to verse 21 to 33, let me read you a little bit uh, of what happens in Ephesians before that. Okay? Ephesians, the first three chapters, is largely theological, and it's great theology. Uh, the Apostle Paul, who penned these words, he, he wrote to the, probably not just one church, but a, a circle of churches around Ephesus, which is Asia Minor, which would be modern-day Turkey. And uh, he had actually spent about three years there with, with uh, that community of Christians, and so this is the longest the Apostle Paul stayed anywhere during his journeys and during his public ministry. He was always traveling around, and we talk about the first journey of the Apostle Paul, the second journey, the third journey. Uh, the longest he ever stayed in one place was at Ephesus, and he stayed about three years. Uh, so he knew some of these people really well. He had started the church there. He had led some of them to Christ. He, he had a heavy teaching ministry there. And now, some years later, he writes back to that church and and this is probably what's called a circular letter. They would circulate it around to other congregations and other churches as well. But in the second half of Ephesians, the first half is largely theological, great theology. The second half is largely practical where he's going to basically tell us, you know, the gospel that he talked about in the first three chapters, here's how it gets lived out in practical living. And when you get to chapter 5, I want to read a little bit from the beginning of chapter 5 before we get to our uh, submission controversy. And uh, here's what it says. In uh, the, actually the last verse of chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 32 to chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Now, this he writes to everybody, married or single, right? Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, whatever he's going to say about uh, marriage and parenting, and he'll get to that in a bit, but I, I think we need to see this first, that he's calling all of God's people, he says, be kind, be compassionate, be forgiving to one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And then he says, follow God's example or imitate God as dearly loved children, because you are, you are a dearly loved child of God. And then he says, walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. That's a reference to the cross and the crucifixion of Jesus and his sacrifice on our behalf. Now, here, here's what I want us to see. That before the Bible tells us we've got to love, it says you are loved. And you've been loved extravagantly. You've been loved by the generosity of God and you've been loved by the sacrificial death of Jesus on your behalf. And then that puts the context not only for our relationship with God, but that then becomes the context for our relationships with other people. Because now we're told, forgive just as you've been forgiven by God in Christ. Right? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Right? And then it says, love in the way that you've been loved by God. I think that puts our marriages in a whole different context. It's not just about two people who are in love or who were in love really trying hard to make it work and exercising all their willpower and reading all their self-help manuals and, and going to counseling and all that, trying to make this relationship work. It's not just that, although I think there is work in marriage. But it starts not with us, but with God. Uh, not with us in, in, our, in our volition and our determination it starts with our posture of humility and receiving from God. 
uh, and, and letting his love just wash over us, uh, reminding ourselves that while we were yet his enemies, Jesus paid the ultimate price to give his life for us. And that now, with a, with a heart that's been forgiven and embraced and accepted, now we're told, forgive each other just as Christ has forgiven you. Love each other just as God has forgiven you. I think it puts marriage in a whole different context when you have the, the presence of God and the reality of God. Now, I want to get to verse 21. It's very important. I, I think this passage, Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 33, I, I just want to say this. It makes all the difference in the world where you start this passage. Now, when you read an English translation of the Bible, some of the translations will make a... a a section division between verses 21 and 22. In other words, they'll put 21 verse, with verses 19 to, to 21. And, and I get that, and there's some grammatical reasons to do that. Uh, verse, verse 18, Ephesians 5 verse 18 says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Or It basically means it just ruins you. Don't get drunk on wine, it ruins you. But instead be filled with the Spirit. And that doesn't mean you're in a drunken stupor from the Holy Spirit instead of alcohol. It, it means that um, you're, you're being led by the Spirit. You're being filled by the, Holy, by the Holy Spirit and with the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what the Bible teaches. <clears throat> if you're a Christian and you've given your life to Christ and you've received Him into your life and you've signed up to follow Him, God has given you the gift of forgiveness of your sins through Christ and His sacrifice, and God has given you the gift of the Holy Spirit. So every true Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't mean you're filled with the Holy Spirit. So here in Ephesians 5.18, the Apostle Paul says, don't get drunk with wine, that just leads to ruin. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Now, this is one of the only places in Paul's letters where he actually tells us, what are the consequences when someone is filled with the Spirit? What is the result that we can expect if someone is filled with the Holy Spirit, controlled and empowered by the Spirit? And he gives four results here. The first one is uh, in verse 19. He says, Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Now, in other words, I, I think he's saying the first result of being filled with the Holy Spirit is you begin to relate to each other differently. People filled with the Spirit... It doesn't mean we're always just singing to each other, you know. But, but the idea here is that the conversation, the level of conversation is beyond just sports or it's just beyond trivial stuff that there's actually some spiritual conversation going on here, speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and songs from the Spirit. So the first thing is when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you begin to interact with other Christians differently. You don't just criticize them. You don't just put them down. You don't just judge them. Right? You don't compete with them. You begin to see them as brothers and as sisters, and you want to build them up. You want to, you want to bless them spiritually. So that's the first thing. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, the first thing that happens is you begin to speak to other people differently. The second thing that happens is you begin to worship the Lord. It says, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. In other words, uh, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you want to praise God. You want to thank God. So it says, sing and make music uh, in your heart, or from your heart. Some people think, oh, it just says in your heart. That means I don't really need to sing because I'm singing in my heart, right? This really means from your heart. It actually can be translated, uh, sing and make music with all your heart to the Lord. In other words, sincere, genuine, heartfelt worship. I don't just come and go through the motions. I don't come, just come to church with a critical spirit like, show me what you got today. You know, I hope the music's good. I hope the preaching is good. hope it's not too boring. You know, I hope the cake is fresh, and I hope I get some fruit on my cake. You know, we, we don't just come with a, a, an, a, as an observer, as an attender, but we come because we want to worship the Lord. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you want to worship the Lord. You want to praise the Lord. Now, here's the third thing that happens when someone's filled with the Holy Spirit, right? First, speaking to one another differently. Second, worshiping the Lord from the heart, not just going through the motions. Third, verse 20, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know how to tell if someone's filled with the Spirit? One way, one indication is, do they have a grateful heart or a critical heart? Do they have a thankful spirit or a judging spirit? Because if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, it says you're always giving thanks to God the Father for everything 
in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. doesn't mean everything that happens is good. Everything that happens is not what you necessarily wanted it to happen. But you can be thankful. Thank you, God, that you are good. Thank you, God, that you're in control. Thank you, God, that you love me. Thank you that you hold my life in your hands and that you hold our church in your hands and you hold my future in your hands and your plans are good and that you love me. So this is what it says. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you speak to one another differently, you worship the Lord with your heart, from your heart, and you have a thankful spirit, not a judging, critical spirit. And then the fourth thing is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, this doesn't come through that clearly in all of our English translations. But what you see is you see an imperative, a command in verse 19. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. That's an imperative. That's a command. And then there are three supporting verbs that tell us uh, what that command means or what it looks like or what the consequences of that command are. One is you speak to one another differently. One is that you worship the Lord from your heart. The third one is that you give thanks to God and you have a, a thankful heart. And the fourth one is you submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, verse 21 is the key verse here because it's part of that passage. It's part of those four qualities of, of people who are experiencing being filled with the Holy Spirit. However... Verse 21 is a bridge verse because it leads right into verse 22. Now, most people don't know this, but verse 22, that famous much-loved and much-hated verse that says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. That verse in the original language does not have the word submit in it. It's really true. Now, the translators put it in there because it's implied but, but in the original language, it's more like submitting yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ and wives as unto your husbands. See, it's implied, but I, I just want to say this, that it's, it's not like this is all about, you know, the hammer coming down and pounding on this. Submit, woman, submit, right? That's not what it is. The, the, verb, the word submit is not actually even in that verse. It's implied from the previous verse. So I think if we're going to read verse 22 properly, we have to connect it with verse 21. Now, here, here's why it's important. You don't want a grammar lesson. I'll just tell you why, why this is so important. The main idea, the main thesis of this section of the, book, of the Bible, Ephesians 5, verses 21 to 33, the main idea is this. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then for a couple of verses, he's going to talk about what that might look like for women, for wives. And then a, a, a sec, another section, twice as long, is going to talk about what that might mean for husbands. But the main idea is submit to one another. So let's read it. Ephesians 5, 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Right? That's your topic sentence. And then wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. And now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Okay? And then, well, before we get to the husband's instruction, let me say a word about submit. I know for some people, submit is like a dirty word, like you wish that we could remove it from our vocabulary. We wish that we could take a scissors and cut out these verses from the Bible and throw them away, right? Submitting is not a dirty word, and it's not a derogatory word, and it's not a negative word, and it's not a demeaning word. You know what submitting means? To submit is to yield in love to another person. To yield in love to another person. To put your own interests aside for the sake of another. Now, I want you to think about this. Have you ever driven your car and... Uh, you come to a four-way stop sign? Okay, we've all done that. There's one when I come to church on Sundays. Uh, now, who gets to go first when there's a four-way stop sign? Yeah, I think there's two answers, right? First answer is whoever got there first, everybody stops, but whoever got there first should get to go first, right? The other answer is what if two cars arrive at the intersection at the same time? Then who gets to go first? What does the law say? The, okay, the car on the right is supposed to get to go first. If the two cars got there at the same time, the car on the right gets to go first. And we call that who has the right-of-way, right? Now, you ever think about this? Everybody else has to submit. 
If you weren't that car that has the right of way to go first, everybody else has to submit, right? You yield so that someone else can go first. It doesn't mean it's a demeaning thing. It's not a humiliating thing. But you yield so that another person's interests can go before your own. Now, I want you to think about this. You cannot love someone well if you're not willing to submit to them. Right? You think about that. Because if you're not willing to submit to them, what are you doing? You're always demanding your own way. You're always insisting on your rights. So love and submission, it's almost like they're two sides of the same coin. Now, here's how the passage starts. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you speak to other people differently, you worship the Lord from your heart, you have a heart of thanksgiving and gratitude, and you submit to one another. You're not insisting on your own way. So submission is not a dirty word. It's not a bad word. It just means to yield in love to another person and putting your own interests aside for the sake of someone else. Now, someone said this, I think... One of the greatest dangers and threats to marriage is selfishness, right? Or just naturally self-centered. I want what I want, and I want my needs met, and, and all of that, right? And yet, we realize that in marriage, if two people go in that way or conduct themselves way, that way, that marriage has, is afflicted by a poison, the poison of selfishness, self-centeredness, right? What's the solution for that? Submit to one another. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. To yield in love to another person. Let me, let me share with you some, some scriptures uh, from other parts of the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 13, many of you will know that's the great love chapter, right? Love is patient, love is kind. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 and 5. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. Right? And we've read that, we heard that, it's not self-serving. Now, you know what that's saying? Love is submissive. It does not demand its own way. Here's another one, Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Romans chapter 12, verse 10. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. If I'm always going to insist that, no, I want to be honored. I want to be honored. I'm not going to be loving, right? I'm just going to be self-serving. That's a great verse, Romans 12, 10. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. That's basically saying submit to one another, right? Here's another one, Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. You know what, that, you know what that's called? Submission, right? In, humil in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. See, submission is not a bad thing. It doesn't have to be demeaning or humiliating or abusive. Submission is loving someone enough to yield to them, to, to you know, be concerned about their interests and their needs. In Ephesians 4, verse 32, uh, up to chapter 5, verse 2, here's what the Apostle Paul says. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Right? Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, this is what he's saying. Christ forgave you. Christ loved you. Now you forgive as you've been forgiven. Now you love as you've been loving. That's how you imitate God. That's how you follow in God's footsteps. Now, wives are told, submit to your husbands. In fact, they're called to submit, submit to your own husband as you do to the Lord. Now that does not mean put your husband in the place of the Lord and worship him and just be subservient to him. Rather, it means that a woman ought to submit to her husband as she submits to the Lord, you know, as an act of service and submission to the Lord, she should submit to her husband. It doesn't mean to be his slave. It means to yield to him in love. It doesn't mean that wives can't express themselves. It doesn't mean that they can't think independently. It doesn't mean that they, uh, they don't get to cooperate in decision-making that affects the marriage and the family. That, you know, you're supposed to submit to one another. 
But that means sometimes the wife has to submit, right? Uh, I was thinking about this uh, when we first got married. Um, I never realized how selfish I was. I actually thought, I was deluded, but I actually thought I'm a pretty unselfish person. I'm a very giving and generous person. I was totally deluded because when I got married, I found out I'm a selfish person. I, I like what I like and I want things my way and it really bugs me if I can't find something and you know, I was quick to blame my wife even though sometimes it was just totally my fault. I, I, I never realized how selfish I was until I got married. Now, was I selfish before? Probably was, but I could get away with it when I was single. It wasn't that noticeable and I was pretty much unaware. But when we got married, I realized, wow, I really do. I, I, my life revolves around me and my wants, and, and I want everything to go my way, and I want to be in control. And so this is what I, I had. A, I had one of those aha moments my first year of marriage. You know what happened? I think this was from the Lord. I, I realized that actually this marriage thing, it's not just about getting my needs met and getting what I want. This marriage thing, it's really a lot about dying to yourself, which is a hard thing. You know, uh, but it's really what Jesus had said all along, right? Remember Jesus said, if you're going to come follow me, and he wants, he wants you to come follow me, but he says, if you want to follow me, if anybody wants to be my disciple, they have to do what? Right? Deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and come follow. And we might think, oh, that doesn't sound fun. That sounds like a lot of work. That sounds actually painful. Deny myself, take up my cross daily, and come follow. And some people at that point, they'll just say, Thanks, but no thanks, Jesus, I'm walking away. But I want you to think about what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is saying, you know, I have a life for you. And I want, you, I want us to do life together. And I've got, I love you. I've got plans for you. We're going to go out on this kingdom mission together. We're going to learn how to fish for people. Uh, we're going to declare the kingdom of God. We're going to call people to God. We're going to connect people with God so they can experience God's purposes for their lives. And I want you to join my team, and we're going to do that together. But if you're going to do that, you can't be on another team, right? You've got to forsake yourself. If you're going to embrace my agenda, you're going to have to Submit your agenda to mine, right? It's called lordship. It's called discipleship. It's called being a Christian. It's called walking with Jesus. If you're going to walk with him, you can't just walk anywhere you want, right? So Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be one of my followers, if you want to join my team, uh, you're welcome. But you've got to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and then come follow, and we'll do life together. I just want you to think about that. That means I'm going to have to let go of some things and I'm going to have to submit. But Jesus asks me to do that not because he, he's mean and cruel and he wants to deprive me. He asks me to do that because basically what he's saying is leave behind the things that would prevent you from experiencing life on my terms. I do love you and I have a good will and purpose for you. And life can be an adventure as we journey together in this journey called discipleship. But You've you got to leave anything behind that's going to hold you back, right? So, if he calls you to get married, he says, well, wives, submit to your husbands. And it doesn't mean that, you know, you have no rights. It doesn't mean you can't express yourself. It doesn't mean you cease to be a person. It means that you love, and in your love, you yield to the other person. Now, that doesn't seem fair, does it? So then the instructions to husbands come. It's twice as long as the instructions to wife, and I think it's far more demanding. Here's what it says. Two husbands, this is Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, if you didn't get it the first time, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Verse 31, for this reason, and this is a direct quote from the creation narrative when God designed marriage. Uh, Ephesians 5.31 is really citing Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. 
This is a profound mystery, but I'm, asked, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, and I think here's the summary sentence for this section. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Here's what I want you to see. The scripture says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, you submit to your husbands. Do that in submission and service to the Lord. Husbands, here's what it means to you. You love your wife the way Jesus loved the church and gave himself up, sacrificed his life. This is a high calling. This was one of the reasons I was afraid of marriage for years. It was because I'm thinking I, I should not get married. It would not be right or, or healthy for me to get married until I'm with somebody that I would say, you know what, I'm going to love you like Christ loved the church. And he gave his life. That's a high calling. I, I think actually that, that's, that's a more demanding thing than just saying submit to your husband, right? It's the way that husbands are to work out their submit to one another, their mutual submission, is you love your wife in a sacrificial way, which means what? You put her needs before your own. You put her interests before your own. And you know what that's called? Submission, right? You can't love without submission. So here's what the Apostle Paul says. I think he's really teaching mutual submission. Husbands and wives are to live together in an attitude of humility and service to one another. They're there to live together in submission to Christ. When mutual submission is practiced, husbands and wives embody the humble servanthood that Christ epitomized in his earthly obedience, even to the point of death. Now let me tell you what that means, husbands. If you are called to love your wife like Christ loved the church, there is no license to dominate her or to be domineering. There's no license to be abusive. There's no place for being controlling, for being tyrannical, for being dictatorial. If a husband has to say, wife, you submit because I'm the man and you're supposed to submit to me, that's not really biblical. You're supposed to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This passage is about, it's not about demanding your own rights. It's not about gaining power and then lording it over someone else. You know what it's about? It's about serving one another. It's about submitting to one another. It's about sacrificing for the other person's good. That's what Paul's talking about. In fact, in fact, this is what he says. Husbands, you're to love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Self-sacrificial love. Right? Now, most of us husbands, let's say somebody broke into your home one night and it was a, a gunman, and they point a gun at your wife. And you have a, just a split second to make a decision. But self-sacrificial love would say, I would just throw my body out there and sacrifice myself. I'd rather get shot than my wife get shot, right? And uh, that rarely happens, but once in a while it does happen, right? Most of us, we're not going to be called to make that instantaneous, dramatic ultimate sacrifice. Most of us, to love your wife as Christ loves the church means every day you care, you serve, right? And, and it, it may not be one, one big dramatic moment at the climax of your life. It's probably more likely just daily acts of kindness and servanthood and forgiveness and lifting up a person and building them up, right? But that's what it means. Love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave his life for the church. Husbands are to love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Uh, Paul also says husbands are to love their wives as their own body. And he says, you know, anybody, unless you're crazy, you take care of your body, right? You feed your body, you care for your body, you protect your body. He says, husbands, you've got to love your wife that same way. Because now you're one flesh, right? You're united. So he says, love your wife as your own body. And then at the end he says, you love your wife as you love yourself. Now think about how different that is from the way the world often thinks of love. Often when people say, I love you, especially in a dating situation, uh, often it's an immature, selfish love. It's just a surface love. In fact, truth be told, really probably what they mean is, I love me and I want you. Ouch. 
But some of us, we know what that's like, right? That's a superficial, selfish, it's not really love, but we call it love. It's really self-centered. I want me, I love me, and I want you. I want you until I'm done with you, till I've used you up, or, or till someone else seems more attractive or more appealing, right? So that's so different. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. I would say single guys, don't get married till you meet somebody that you would say, yeah, I'm going to love you like Christ loved the church. I'm going to lay my life down for you. Maybe not in one hail of bullets, but maybe just daily acts of serving you and loving you, caring for you, giving to you, providing for you, protecting you, right? And, and love your wives as your own body. You feed and care and love your wife as you love yourself. Now, uh, toward the end of this passage in verse 31, he goes back to the design for marriage. He's going to quote from God's design for marriage in Genesis 2. And this is what he says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife or cleave to his wife and the two will become one flesh. It's a quote from Genesis 2.24. And this is God's design for marriage, that a man and a woman, first of all, that they separate from their parents. Now, hopefully you're always going to honor your parents and love your parents, but you are now going to be in a new relationship, a different relationship with your parents. Because when you get married, your spouse is to be your closest human relationship. That's why the Bible says a man will leave his father and mother. I think by implication, a woman will leave her father and mother in the sense of the emotional uh, ties and dependence, you know, and, and that now there needs to be a certain... You know what the point is? It's about exclusiveness. You know how often in a marriage ceremony you'll hear the pastor say something like this, and will you, forsaking all others, love and be faithful to this, you know, person that's now about to become your spouse? It's the forsaking all others. In other words, this, this first clause is about severance. A man will leave his father and mother. It's about severance so that you can have an exclusive relationship. How would you like it if you're about to marry someone and she says, you know, uh, when we have our engagement party, do you mind if I bring a date? Uh, time out. You don't understand what marriage is about, right? It's an exclusive relationship. So there's severance. And then secondly, there's permanence. A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, right? Cleave to his wife. That's a permanent relationship. It means we're in it together as long as we both shall live. And then the third thing is unity, and the two shall become one flesh. That's not just a sexual union. That means our lives are now bound together. I like to think about it like, like two people in the same, same boat, right? Um, you're in a rowboat, and one person's in the front, one person's in the back, and, and you're just rowing down the river, and, and then the, the boat hits a, a rock, and there's a hole in, in the boat, and it's filling up with water. And you can't sit back and say, wow, so glad that didn't happen on my side of the boat. You know why you can't say that? Because you're in it together, right? If the boat goes down, you're both going down. That's what marriage is. A man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. From now on, we're one team. We win together, we lose together, we drown together, we live together, right? So that means once you're married, there's no more win-lose conflict. If we have an argument and I win and my spouse loses, I may have won the battle, but you know what? I'm starting to lose the war, right? Because I may have gotten my way, but at what expense? I've hurt my partner, and our marriage has been damaged. This happens so often. Couples, they squabble, they fight, they argue. Sometimes they have power struggles, they have conflicts. One person wins, one person loses. But you know what? If one person wins and the other person loses, you both lost, right? You both lost. Because there's less trust in your marriage. There's less security in your relationship. So now, this is what I think. Once you're married, you can't have those win-lose conflicts. You win together or you lose together. You find some way to work it out that's good for both people. Now, there are times where one person will yield more to the, than, you know, to the other person. And you know what that's called? Submission. Mutual submission. Okay, let me wrap it up here. I want to talk about five ways to express love. There's so much uh, misunderstanding about what love is. Like I said, sometimes people, when they say I love you, they just really mean I love me and I want you. Sometimes when people say I love you, they mean I love you like I love oranges. And after I've squeezed everything out of the orange I wanted, I throw it in the trash. So many misconceptions about what love is, right? 
here's a, let me tell you about five expressions of love, genuine love. First of all, if I love you, I will accept you as you are. Right? If I love you, I will accept you as you are. Second, if I love you, I will believe you are valuable. I will not just put you in the trash after I've squeezed out what I want. <clears throat> if I love you, I will treat you as someone prized and precious and valuable. Okay? I'll accept you as you are. I'll believe you are valuable. A third, if I love you, I will care when you hurt. When you're hurting, I won't just say, hey, get your act together. Get over it. Buck up. Be a man. Right? If I love you, I will care when you hurt. And sometimes I may have caused that hurt, and I'm going to care for you, not just defend myself, right? Uh, fourth, okay, accept you as you are, believe you're valuable, care, if you, care when you hurt. Uh, fourth, it's got to start with D, right? Desire what's best for you. If I love you, I will desire what's best for you. And that ain't easy, because mostly I want what's best for me, right? But that's not love. Love says, I will desire what's best for you. Now, now, those of you that are single, I want you to think about this. If you're in a dating relationship and you're starting to think, man, I think I love this person, what does that mean? And does that mean you desire what's best for that person? Because that's love, right? Okay, accept you as you are, believe you're valuable, care when you hurt, desire what's best for you. And here's the last one. If I love you, I will forgive your offenses. Because there's going to be some offenses. There's going to be some hurt. There's going to be some misunderstanding. There's going to be some need for forgiveness. How many of you are married? Have you ever needed to forgive your spouse? Well, I should have, but I didn't know. <laughs> I mean, they, they, isn't this true? They've needed some forgiveness, right? Have you ever needed their forgiveness? I had this ethics professor in seminary, Dr. Lewis Smeads. He was a great man. I, I still remember one thing he said. A good marriage requires two good forgivers. Uh, oh, yeah, that's it. A good marriage requires two good forgivers. And when you forgive somebody, what do you do? You swallow your pride. You let go of your rights. In fact, my favorite definition of forgiveness is this. When I forgive you, I'm letting, I'm letting go of my right to hurt you for hurting me. Right? I'm not going to keep punishing you. I'm not going to keep bringing it up. I'm not going to keep blaming you. When I forgive you, I'm saying I'm, I'm setting you free. I'm going to let go of my right to hurt you for hurting me. A good marriage requires two good forgivers. Okay, is that helpful? I heard this years ago, and to me this has been so helpful because love seems so mushy today, so distorted, so confused, sometimes just abstract, often, un often harmful and toxic. But I think God's love is this. This is how God loves us, right? I accept you as you are. I believe you are valuable, so valuable. My son Jesus is going to die on the cross for you. I care when you hurt. And if you're anxious and heavy burden, you come to me and I'm going to give you rest, right? And I desire what's best for you and I'm going to forgive your sins. Now, I think the healing of marriages comes from that. Out of reverence for Christ. Forgive, forgive as you've been forgiven. Love as you have loved. And submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. See if that'll make a difference. I know it will. Let's pray. Let's just take a moment in silence. Maybe you can just think and ponder or pray. Ask the Lord, what do you need to hear from all of this? What do you need to take away? Some of, for some of us, what comes to mind is some regret for how we haven't done things well, how we haven't loved rightly. Lord, forgive us.
Forgive us for when our selfishness has hurt the people that are closest to us. Forgive us for when we have demanded our own way and insisted on being in control. Forgive us, Lord. And thank you, Lord, that you love us. Even in our most unlovable moments, you love us. Thank you that you grant grace and mercy and forgiveness to all those who turn to you. And Lord, we pray for the healing and restoration of strange relationships, for the rebuilding of broken relationships. Lord, that as far as it depends on us, we would be at peace with everyone. Maybe on this Mother's Day, we're reminded of strained mother-child relationships or parent-child relationships. And Lord, teach us how to do this better. Teach us how to relate well, to love well, to be good forgivers. Lord, some of us, we just have to ask you, forgive us for our neglect. Forgive us for taking our loved ones for granted. Forgive us for being too lazy or too selfish to work on our marriages. And Lord, help us to find our way back to each other. Lord, you are the great healer. And you would heal not only our own hearts, but heal our relationships as well, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.